1955, a woman named Elizabeth Henson stood at her home wardrobe closet with the goal of cleaning it out. And as she stood there, she smelled the mothballs and the mildew, and she came across an old green jacket that was crumpled, really rough around the edges, faded colors. And as she looked at this jacket, she thought, that's definitely going in the throwaway pile. Who would want this? It's discarded. It needs to be thrown out. But surprisingly, someone wanted it. What in the world would they do with this thing? That someone was her, was her son. And this young son of hers took the crumpled up green coat and took it to his makeshift home workshop. He took needles and thread and a pair of scissors and he stitched and sewed and fashioned it and shaped it into a vision that he had. He took a ping pong ball and cut it in half for the eyes. And who would have thought in 1955 that this old green coat could be turned into what would become an international pop icon, would date a prima donna pig and play an Oscar-nominated song in, you know, the became famous in, in all the world, playing a banjo in a swamp. Who could have ever imagined that? The woman, Elizabeth Henson, her son was Jim, and the green coat became Kermit the Frog. And I can tell you, because I've known him for a bunch of years, what he sang about and said is so true. It is not easy being green. Second chances. Second chances would say to us that a banjo-playing famous frog could be made out of an old, discarded green jacket. Last week, one of our young pastors, Nick Crawford, kicked off this October series called Second Chances, where we were looking at the idea of Jesus and how he encountered people and told parables and taught stories and wants to remind us, he wants to lift up the downtrodden. When your shoulders are slumped and your head is down, and when you're feeling discarded and old, where like someone, no one would pick you, and that you're just not going to be useful again, Jesus reminds us, as one of his followers would later say in Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship. That means he's the artist. He's the one that picks us up when it seems like no one else would want us or no one else could rescue us. And he says, I have a vision for what I can make you into. This morning, I have the unenviable task of tackling a really familiar story. In fact, it's one of those familiar stories in all scriptures. That means I'm standing up in front of you and I have to get past your defenses. You cross your arms and go, ah, I've heard this story so many times before. It's fabled in story and song. It's one of those famous stories in all the world. The great writer Charles Dickinson called it. Dickens rather called it the, the most famous short story ever told. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. In a moment, we're going to put up a few of the passages on the screen. Luke chapter 15, this is Jesus encountering some folks. We'll see who he encounters in a minute. And he tells a story. It's really a trilogy of stories. And you, you kind of have to follow where he's going here. But in the trilogy of stories, he talks about, and it sort of it crescendos into this climax of the lost son. And he starts with a lost coin and then tells a story about a lost sheep. And then we see today this story of the lost son. And though it's famous and though many of you know it, I want to challenge you with this. Don't leave here today thinking, ah, oh, this is a cute, quaint little story. I'm so glad Pastor Green reminded us of this parable. Like, don't leave 
with that sentiment or that idea today. Because Luke 15 is one of the stories that got Jesus killed. Jesus, in this trilogy of stories, he enters onto the scene and as he tells these stories, he disrupts. He deconstructed the world as they knew it and he constructed the world that he created, that he wants to recreate. You know what I've noticed about young people? Most of our college students are on fall break today. But what I've noticed about young people is they're good at identifying problems. Have you noticed that? you got any young people in your house or work with any millennials, as they say? we got a new generation. You know what they're good at? They're good at spotting the problem. They're good at saying, oh, here's all that's wrong with that older generation. Here's why they're holding us back, and here's what's wrong with it. But they're, they kind of stink, okay? Love you. Love you. If you're a young person, I'm saying this because I love you. But they kind of stink at, at, at telling us how we can fix it. And Jesus does this, because here's the thing. If you just tear down all the houses and you don't build them up again, we're left homeless. And Jesus tells this story, this trilogy of stories, and other stories that he tells. And he deconstructs the world, but he reconstructs, he builds again. He says, here's the problem. Like, almost all of us are fairly decent at identifying problems. But he says, here's the way. Here's the better way. Here's the solution. Luke chapter 15, so that it's not a cute, quaint story, so that you see it's one of the stories that got Jesus killed. In this story, who are the characters? Before we look at the third in the trilogy of stories, the lost son, let's look at Luke 15, 1 and 2. You have it on the Bible, it'd be good if you look down. Here it is on the screen. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. You guys ever grumble? Grumble loud. Does everybody make a loud grumble? Yeah, some of you are good at it. They grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. He is a scandalous dude. Now, tax collectors, we know, some of you just know the map of this, you know a little bit of history. And in this, uh, maybe you learned about the, the story of Zacchaeus, a wee little man was Zacchaeus. What's that song? A wee little man was he. Jimmy Stewart can sing it. He's a medical doctor. And he can sing the Zacchaeus song even today. But like Zacchaeus was a tax collector. There's that, that narrative of him being in the tree and Jesus calling him out. And just like in this story, the tax collector uh, is there. The tax collectors. And they would, they would take money. They would obviously collect taxes. And many of them would line their own pockets. So they would take the tax rate. They would add 10%. They would put it in their own pockets. But listen, it's so much more than that. It's so much more scandalous than that, and we miss it in modern American culture. Why is it far more scandalous than that? Because it's not that big a deal. Jesus is just, I mean, you know, you kind of want Jesus to be a savior and a friend to people and to help those who aren't getting it right if they're cheating a little bit on money. I mean, you know, patting their account, fudging the numbers, cooking the books. Not a big problem, maybe 10%. They got to live, they got to eat. Let Jesus be friends with them. But it's much more than that. Who ruled the world at the time? What government was in charge? The Romans. And what we know about the Romans is that they had a very large empire. It wasn't just this isolated Palestinian area. It covered a very large landmass. Now, if you know, um, in that time, it, it obviously is very different. A, a government today can control a large area and millions and millions of people via technology and the modern weapons that we have. But what about that time? How could 
an ancient military? How could an ancient government control a large landmass? Do you know? Having a massive, massive, massively fortified military. And how do you have that kind of military? It costs money. Where do you get the money? From the people who pay the taxes. Who gets the money? The tax collectors. But the Roman Empire was a very brutal one. Outside of the ancient text, history clearly demonstrates that the Romans, they would siege a city and they would kill some 20 to 30,000 people at a time, men and women and children. It's stomach churning. And they would, in many instances, hang the women, the men, and the children on trees and crosses being displayed when people would enter the city. They wanted to be known that they were big and they were bad and their way. They would control the king. So hold on a second. So you got tax collectors who are neighbors. Can you imagine I just I don't know any modern equivalent. We've got democracies here, of course, praise God. We've got democracies around the world. We've got different forms of government. It's ever evolving. But I can't think of one modern example today. So just think with me. Go back in your mind, understanding a bit of the history now, and think about that. A tax collector, a neighbor, taking money out of your pocket, patting his own a little bit, but giving that money to this empire. And they are drawn to Jesus. Jesus is befriending them along with sinners. Again, our understanding can fall short in some ways, but it's easy to think, I'm oh, a sinner, we're all a sinner, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, that's no big deal. Good for Jesus to hang out with sinners. That's not scandalous. But in that day, the, the sinners were not so much morally destitute, it really was a class distinction. These were people that weren't as good as the rest of us. All right? Uh, the word is pagan, and pagan is probably better translated for our understanding as redneck, you know, kind of people on the outside, people that aren't like us. They're a lower class of people. And these, these people, tax collectors, part of the evil empire, and the sinners. There's a, a story in John chapter 9, some of you know this, where Jesus, where the disciples, they asked, hey, Jesus, why was this man, why is this man blind? Is it his sin or the sins of his father? There was a class distinction of physical deformities and setbacks were seen as sinful. And here we're learning the scandal of the story. Those were the very people that were drawn to him. And then you did it out loud if you did what the preacher said. You grumbled a little bit. And what you did five minutes ago is what the religious people did, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, look, some of you are good Christian people. I know that. Like, I'm proud of you. You're proud of you. You're a good Christian person. You do a lot of things good. But, like, I, when you play by the rules and you do your devotions and you post it on Instagram and we know your quiet time and all that, you know, you do good things. But listen, I love you enough to tell you the truth. The scribes and Pharisees are better than you. Like, they're better than me. The scribes and Pharisees, I mean, they were the Navy SEALs. They were the religious elites. Way better than us. They had memorized the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You ever done a Bible reading plan and you're reading through the first five books? Like you get the numbers and you're like, uh, okay, God, I'm going to First John. Right? <laughs> the Father's love, He has lavished on me. Like First John's about me. Like God loves me. I don't get numbers, right? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have the Torah memorized. The 613 commandments and all this. I mean, they they had a, they had a whole religious ritual built around the Sabbath. They had their steps counted. How many steps could they take on a day of 
Christ. They were really morally upright, far better religiously than anybody in the room, including the guy talking on the stage. And they grumbled. And you see, Jesus tells this trilogy of stories to deep and straight what we think is right and true about religion. And it changed everything about the world in which Jesus entered into. And it's why, it's how he went to the cross. It plays itself out. Luke chapter 15, we'll start in verse 11 and we'll read it. Here we go. And he said there was a, a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. But I perish here with my hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fat calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. Here's the gospel story. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. In this, I want to call your attention if your Bible is still open. We'll take the passage down, but I want you to call your attention to verse 12. This son, and before I do that, let me just say, there's three characters in this story. Three characters in the story. Younger son, older son, and the father. And we make a couple of very common mistakes about the story. One of the mistakes we make is that we think the story is about the younger son. Right? We think it's about the son who went away and squandered in a faraway country, lived recklessly. But the story is about the father. The main character is not the younger son. The main character is not the older son. The main character is the father, and it's the father in the span of 20 verses that's mentioned 12 times. Another mistake we make in the story is we, we don't really understand the word prodigal. We think it means rebellious, just going away. But it's actually, the more precise definition is reckless. It's when you spend yourself and get to a place where you're at the end of yourself. And here we see a son saying, I don't want the relationship. I don't like your rules, but I do need your resources. And I'm going to go and I'm going to do things my way. A little bit of wonderlust. Anybody got some wonderlust? Like you, you want to travel, you want to get away. That's a good thing. But it was way beyond just wonderlust. It was lust. It was greed. It was a, a sense of, I'm better than this. And I can, I can pay a different path. How do you spell sin? Spell it out, church. S-I-N. You can do that better. How do you spell sin? Now, I want you to do that. I want you to spell it again, but I want you to emphasize the middle letter in it. Okay, so with your voice inflection, as you say the 
word emphasize that middle word. Ready, okay? That's it. That's it. It's the I in that word. Some of you, this is your first time at you're like, okay, this is, he's going to start controlling us now. It's that I word. I know the better path. I don't want this relationship. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to live where I want to live and live the way that I want to live. I know better than you. I don't have to play by the rules. And that's the heartbeat of sin that we see in this story. I don't want your rules, Dad. I don't even want a relationship. But I do need your resources. Think of it in the story, if you will, as it plays out. Think of it in split screen. You got a 60-inch flat screen on the wall, and it's split screen. Some of you fellas did that yesterday in watching football. But on one side, you've got the story playing out of Jesus' parable. We see a lot. We don't have to imagine that much. We see on that side of the screen the son going to the faraway land and squandering his wealth. But on this side is the father. The other half of the split screen is the dad. Can you imagine being the dad in this story? If you're a dad, you're in it. Yesterday, a beautiful lake house overlooking the lake. I stood with an older man who had a part in a ceremony that I was about to lead. It was about 45 minutes before kickoff, and I was getting to know him. And he was telling me about his, his kids. I was bragging on mine, and I was asking him about his. And I learned that as an older man in, in his 60s, he's got older kids. And he told me about his son. That he doesn't know. He didn't, he didn't know anything about him. He's got an address, and they send him. He sends him some resources. He sends him cards. He can't not do that. But he never, ever hears back from him. Sir, how old is this son? 38. I hope, he said to me, I hope one day that I can see my son again. I long, no matter what he's done, I long to have a relationship with him. Can you imagine? Just said to him, Pastors don't have all the right words, right? I'm human. I just looked at him as you would and just said, maybe. I would like that. I would hope for that. What a story that would be. And here this son takes it as Jesus tells in his parable. He takes this wealth and he spends it all on himself. Sin. S-I-N. This is all about what I want. And I don't want you. And in this living, it's reckless. Right? Here's what I pray for, for our church. I pray that we have vanilla testimonies, that when we baptize people, and here's so-and-so, they trusted Jesus, and hey, they maybe had a bad freshman year, but they came back to Jesus, and there's just not a lot of drama there. It's just a good, solid story of God saving somebody and leading them. Like, I pray for that. But also pray, pray for a church where there's some folks who've been saved from reckless living. That we have prodigal stories. That we even have to look around the room. And ladies, you're careful about leaving your purse right there by your feet because you're not just sure what's going to happen in Fondry Church. Because we've got stories of people who are finding freedom all around the room in many different ways. And that we would reflect more of the heart of the story that Jesus wants to save those who are so far from him, who 
and got to a place where everybody wondered, does he give them a second chance? Or if it's you today, do I get a second chance in this relationship or in another significant relationship? He squandered it. Here's what I'll ask you. Let's don't get too far past this, but did he have a good time? Did this elder, did he have, did he have a good time? Let me, let me state it, state the question differently because most of you apparently are asleep. Did, uh, is there, is there, is sin fun? That's my question. Is sin fun? Don't answer out loud. You can get in a whole lot of trouble. Like, I'm, honestly, I'm going to judge you. If you go, yeah, yeah, it is, then I'm, I'm looking down on you. Right? Really? Okay? So just inwardly. Don't let me see. But is sin fun? Not, you're not doing it right. Right? Now you some of you need a Bible, some of you are fit. Like, I, you know, I'm not coming back to fathering anymore. Genesis says it's just gonna throw a verse at you. I love you, just throw a verse at you. There is pleasure in sin for a season. Right? So I'm not gonna be the type of preacher or the type of parent that tells my kids or our congregation that you can't go party and live a crazy life and not have fun. But it has an ending to it. It plays out every single time. Though not immediately for some, it does eventually. It does eventually. Several years ago, I'm going to guess it was eight or ten years ago, we were flying back from a Christmas vacation in Florida, in California rather. And on this flight, my son, again, he's 19 now, but about eight or ten years ago, he was a, a younger lad, and he looked and he's, of course, he's son of a pastor. She married a pastor, so we're sitting in uh, coach, always will be in coach. And he looked up to first class, and I, and I said, son, you'll never sit there. Like, not on my table, right? And he looked, and he was, he was marveling not so much at the people that, uh, you know, make more money than their dad, but he was noticing somebody famous. And, of course, this played out quickly. I'm trying to slow it down for you. But I notice as he's looking through his probably 10-year-old eyes, and he notices somebody that he's seen in Hollywood movies, big movies. And lo and behold, he's looking, we're looking now at John Voight. And I remember, I'm an old guy, I remember him from Deliverance, right? And he remembered him more recently from the movie Transformers. And some of you good conservatives have seen him on Fox News a lot, right? But there's John Voight, and he's, he's tall, and he's handsome, and he's regal, and he's kind of working the plane like he's, you know, a politician. And so funny, this is a true story. My wife is next to me. She's going to get mad at me for a second. But she, she doesn't read, like, really healthy things sometimes when we're, you know, traveling. So she was looking at either People Magazine or Us Weekly. She calls them Smutty Magazines. And she was reading one of those magazines and all the Hollywood stuff. And on the cover of the magazine at the very moment that we were seeing John Boyd, on the cover was Angelina Jolie. Are you with me? Like, you know, this, you watch TMZ and all that stuff. But, like... So I'm telling my son, yeah, that's him. That's John Voigt. And guess what? He is her dad. And at the time, I leaned over and I was reading some of the article, not looking at any pictures of Angelina Jolie, because I think she's ugly. But uh, <laughs> Susan is awesome, but Angelina Jolie, not so much. But I was reading the article. And it was, she was uh, vulnerable. And she was talking about her life and what people thought of her life from the outside looking in. And she was saying, estranged from her dad, 
think she had a brand pin on her arm, but there just wasn't a lot of happiness. And she said that. She's like, I'm just not happy. When I went away, when I broke from my dad, when I went out alone, when I did this, I thought it would lead somewhere. And it took a long time for her to get to that place. I don't know where she is now. Again, this is eight or ten years ago. But she was saying, I'm not in a good place. What I thought would bring me happiness has led me to a darker place. There is pleasure in sin for a season. For a season. And here we see, thanks to economic downturn, and here's the reality. God has used that in my own life. Like he's never got my attention more than when we struggle to pay a bill. Right? Are you with me? I mean, that's 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 a tough place to be. Imagine leading, some of you do, but leading in a church where we try to help people, come around people, minister to them in times of need, as much as our resources will allow. But it's tough to experience an economic downturn, and some of you know what I'm talking about. God has got your attention when the economy has gone south. And pigs, we, we miss that in the story. It's like we're like a bacon fry. Right? I mean, bacon. God bless bacon. Right? We love some bacon. We were in a small group several years ago. There's a couple from Maine. He used to be the basketball coach at Bell Haven. And his wife innocently said at our small group one night, she goes, oh, green beans. I didn't know you could put bacon on green beans. And we all just turned and looked at her like, who are you? You are obviously from Maine. Like, we love bacon. But in this story, you're looking at a Jewish audience. And the, the pig thing, that's the lowest of the low. Think, for us, think rat. Think just living in a rat-infested place. And that's where he ended up. And he goes home because Scripture tells us when he came to his senses. It's one of my favorite lines in the, all the Bibles. Some of you have heard me say this. He came to his senses. Some of you are praying that for someone right now, aren't you? That that person that you love would come to their senses. And now... Let's get awkward for a moment. There's probably somebody praying that for you. And there's probably some people in this very room. Somebody's praying for you. That you would come to your senses. One pastor I know in this parable calls it the aha moment. Where there's an awakening. An arresting of his attention. Where he looks upward and outward and away from I, I, I. Away from the sin in him. And says, I was wrong. That I need to go back. And in this story, we see this son, and as I've read it and studied it afresh this week, I, I believe that the son had prepared to once. You ever have to have a difficult conversation, like you have to confess a sin, or you have to tell somebody that you've been wrong, that you want to come back home? That's a tough speech to get. Like, isn't that one of the tough conversations to have when you got to go say, I, I was wrong? I I'm so sorry. That's so difficult. And some of you, praise God, have found out God is in that. When you are broken and contrite, when you are miserable and you mourn, you paradoxically find a happiness that you've never known before. And here's a son, I'm sure, I'm using my sanctified imagination, but I think he prepared a speech. It was a difficult speech. And in his speech, when he goes to his father, he's telling him as he wants to return, hey, I'm not worthy to be your son. We just read, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'll be your son. And the father I envision interrupts him. He runs to him. He feels compassion. That Greek word that is used, it's so long, you can barely put it on the screen, but it means bowels and intestines. It means feeling something deeply. And the father feels deeply for this son. And he said, hey, 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 quit. I don't want your prepared remarks. 
I don't need your speech. What are you saying about serpent stuff? You are my son. So there is a robe. There's stuff we don't understand in our culture, but there's a robe, the garment of a father. There's a ring, a status symbol of identity and wealth and love. And there are sandals. And what the son was expecting was re-entry as a slave. And the father says, you are a son with all the rights of sonship. And there is this tender embrace. We don't have time today, but there's the second half of the story where we see the elder brother and his response. And the elder brother, now when the son returns, the father says, the fatty calf, the robe, the ring, and he ran. Isn't that great? He ran to the son. The father runs to the son. Men, older men, really don't run unless it's for sport. Would you agree? We read a conference this week, just my wife and I. We joined some friends from churches here in town. We joined some other church planters. And we were at Mariner's Church in Irving, California. And we took a break. It was a beautiful Southern California day. They all are. And we were out on the grassy knoll. And Jason Smith, some of you may know Jason. He's a church planter in Florida and preached at Fonder a few times back in the day. Jason's a younger guy, and he can throw a 60-yard spiral. So I, I taught Jason to throw me some long bombs. And so here I am, a 50-year-old man running deep post patterns on this grassy knoll. And I was just excited. I, mean, I hadn't had that feeling in so long to run and just to be in the open air and like catch a, a football. It just, I felt like, you know, I was a little boy again. I was hearing the crowd and everything. And for some reason, my ego started going higher. And I call out this 19, 20-year-old kid. He had a lanyard on. He was working the conference. And I said, hey! Hey, try to try to defend me in the deep ball. And he tried, he didn't think he just dropped his lantern and everything and he lined up right there. So I run, you know, another pattern, another post pattern, and I get past him, but right when I make the speed move, right when I make the speed move and accelerate, I pull my hand in and I just fall down. Like loud noise, about five hundred suits and witnesses, about five hundred other people were around me just laughing at the old guy. Like old men don't need to run. Like I mean, you know, just stretch beforehand or something. But like old men, just like if you see an old man running in a hall, he's probably committed a crime. <laughs> or a crime has been committed against him. You with me? And so we see this lack of dignity. And don't miss this. For life to be life. For the gospel to be real to you. There's got to be a few moments in your life where you do not care what other people Hey, Dad, you're really embarrassing yourself. I don't care because my son has returned home. I don't care what, this is not a dignified move at all, but my son has returned home. There's a party. There's a party pooping. You notice that? How many of you like me, you like to party? You're not a wallflower, you're not a party pooper. I see those hands. I've seen how you party too. I need to talk to you later. <laughs> Do you like a party? There was dancing and there was music. All right? Some of you don't take that too far. But there was dancing and there was music that we learned in this parable of Jesus. And then there was the party group of the older brother who grew angry and grew sinful. He wanted a solemn thing. He didn't like the party. He probably called the police a lot and people partying for Jesus, right? I want to close with a few points. We'll put them up. God loves them. Like, we don't party enough. God loves to party. So I'm asking you for just a moment, because some of you are more scribe Pharisee. 
Some of you are more older brother. You're angry and resentful when God does a scandalous work in somebody's life. You know what I'm saying? Like everything you watch, every Cam Newton interview, everybody that's been thrown under the bus, everybody that's not doing well, you hope they get their judgment. You hope they lose sponsors. They did this. Like you're against it. You're against everything. And Jesus tells this story to disrupt us, to deconstruct our world, and to reconstruct the right way, which is God is the God of second chances. And nobody is beyond. And in this, we see a God who loves to be. And what, as I said earlier, some people like things quiet and solemn and routine. Next one. Even the story of the prodigal had a party who refused to enjoy the festivities. A couple more as we close. The older son may be near the house of his father, but he doesn't have the heart of his father. Like, Jackson, Mississippi needs to hear that. You know what I'm saying? Like you're you're in the house, but you're not near his heart. Some sort of religion, some sort of routine. Again, I love you enough to tell you that it's empty and hollow, and I think you ought to do business with God. But Jesus ends his story abruptly. He leaves us hanging. We don't know. If the older brother, the morally upright, the stuffy religious party hooper guy, if he comes back in the house and returns to the father or engages with the father in a hard way, we don't know. But we know the invitation is there. Isn't that great? So who does God say? Who does God give second chances to? He gives second chances to the reckless, to those who squandered to those who've lifted the finger, and I won't do it now, but they've lifted the finger to God and said, I don't need you. I'll take any gift, I'll take any blessing, but I don't need a relationship. And he saves, he gives second chances. But he also gives second chances to the hardened, to the ones who go through a religious motion but have no heart behind it. Who have never been saved never really experienced the touch of the Father, whose hearts have never in Jesus been joined to those he saves. I want to close with a story. Several years ago, Robert Downey Jr. received an award, and all of Hollywood was there. Some of you already smirked. All of Hollywood was there, powerful, influential, cool kids, you know, it's Hollywood. Downey had been allowed to pick the person. He's getting an award, but he was allowed to pick the person who introduces him to the award. But he made an unpopular choice. If I remember this, you can find it on YouTube. He chose Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson was at, like, his lowest. was coming out of his lowest. The press was against Mel Gibson. The public disliked him. So Robert Downey Jr., what was supposed to be his shining moment before he turns the attention. And he stood up, if you will. Listen to me. He stood up for Mel Gibson. Robert Downey Jr. said this. When I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up. He encouraged me to find my faith. I couldn't get higher, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him. Most importantly, he said, if I accept the responsibility for my wrongdoing and 
embraced humility and that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus, he called it, I could become a man. I did, I'm doing it, and it's working. All he asked, all Mel Gibson asked in return, was that someday I help the next guy in some small way. It's reasonable to assume at the time he didn't imagine the next guy would be him or that someday was tonight. So anyway, on this special occasion, I would ask that you join me in forgiving my friend his trespasses and offering him the same clean slate you gave me. He's hugged the cactus long enough. So today, I want to do something a little different. As music plays and we move toward a time of prayer and response, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And if today you would say that you need a second chance, I'm going to ask you to stand. Hey, I'm veered off a little bit. I've got hurt. I've got something where I need to get closer to you. There's something in me that's not pleasing to the Father. There's something going on that I need a second chance in my life right now. I'm going to ask you, would you have the courage to stand up right now? We're not going to ask you to do anything but just stand up. And I want to see, I just want to see you. I want to lift you. There you go. God bless you. Would you stand? Anyone else? standing is just saying, God, I need you. He sees. Don't worry about anybody.